glad that you're here today. We, uh, last week I said that we are wrapping up our marriage series, uh, and that's true, but that meant that we're wrapping it up over the next few weeks, okay? Um, I wasn't going to announce today's topic because I would have been in here by myself, uh, perhaps lecturing over the airwaves to you, and then you all would have been listening at home. Okay, um, and uh, because today's topic is none, uh, none other than the topic of sex, and I know that it's one that many people are interested in, and many people have actual struggles and uh, just functional difficulties, but of course it is extremely uncomfortable to talk about this in church. Now, let me give you a few qualifications. We will be talking about something intimate and something serious, but we will not talk about that in inappropriate ways. Okay, so let me set you at ease uh, that this will be a constructive uh, conversation. I want to lay out to you what the Bible teaches about the subject, okay, and to be honest about that, and also just to talk about practical things that people run into. Uh, over 20 years of pastoral ministry, I've had this conversation a lot, okay, and uh, so I can just talk with you about the practical things that we've been able to see because at the bottom, at the end of the day, uh, your sexuality is ultimately given to you by God and it's a good thing, all right? And uh, we need to understand how that works inside of a marriage relationship. All right, enough qualifications. Let me pray and then we'll get rolling. Father, we're grateful for the morning, the opportunity to once again gather to be taught by you. And we ask in this intimate and uh, sensitive subject that you guide us and that you lead us into all truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, this could be slightly uncomfortable, but it'll be uncomfortable not because we'll address an inappropriate subject, but just simply an intimate and very personal subject. So most prefer the pastor to avoid this, okay? And probably if I was a voting man and I didn't have too much respect for the Bible, I would avoid it as well. But at the end of the day, uh, our sexuality is part of our being created by God. And it's a gift from him. And it's part of life in his world. And God has a lot to say about it throughout the course of scripture. So even kind of the most superficial acquaintance with the, uh, with the Bible lets us know that this is not a neutral subject, okay? And not one that we can avoid. Now, this has been mishandled by uh, the church kind of through time in various ways. There are some modern examples where it's been too graphic and clearly uh, over-obsessionalized by people in the pulpit. You can learn about that uh, if you <laughs> desire to. And then also on the other extreme, it's been avoided, where it's just been kind of left alone. And this leaves people then to kind of be taught about what proper sexuality is from other sources. Okay? And that's not good either. We need to address it uh, from a biblical standpoint, and we need to do so with appropriateness. So two main questions today. First one is, what does God say about sex and human sexuality? And then second one, where do things go wrong in marriages? All right? So let's get to the first question. What does God say about sex and human sexuality? First point, sex is a gift from God. All right, Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that God created human bodies. And what did God say at the end of his six days of creation? What did he say about what he had made? It was good. Not only was it good, it was very good. God was delighted in what he made. And guys, that involves all the concrete stuff of creation. And even prior to the fall, sex and procreation were part of the picture. All right, but unfortunately, just due to some different philosophical currents, 
oftentimes spirituality is associated with non-physical things, okay? And so we associate our spirituality with things like prayer and that to really be spiritual is to escape physicality, is to escape the body. You may remember Plato saying something like this, that the, um, the body is a prison house for the soul, okay? That slips into Christian theology. And what it ends up doing over time is teaching us that things like sex are dirty, okay? Now, are there problems with sex in our world? Nod your heads vigorously up and down, okay? We have talked about this, you know, this fall, that there's lots of sexual corruption. And that's just simply because God's best gifts, God's good gifts, often do becomes the most destructive things inside of a fallen world, all right? But that doesn't lead us then not to celebrate the goodness of what God has given. And so we have to push back against a culture that is uh, using sex destructively, not by becoming overly prudish about it, all right, but rather celebrating it for what it is, that it is a gift from God. So he gave husbands and wives to one another to share in a one flesh union. Okay, this is the first pages of the Bible. Uh, therefore, sex is not dirty in God's sight. It's a gift that God gives to us with particular designs and particular goals. And if you're joining me in shivering, let me just say it is cold. Uh, it's the first time I've ever actually been cold at Christ Church. Um, but just by way of short explanation and aside, during this time of year, the building is completely uh, unpredictable. The heat was on this morning because it was chilly. And then as the temperature begins to rise, the AC comes on, but the building is still a little cold. So uh, this time of year is difficult for us to dial these things in. If you know, need to go get your blanket or wear your toboggan, it's completely uh, okay. All right. So sex is a gift from God. Um, this is what we learn on the first pages of the Bible. Celebrate that. Second, sex is commanded by God. Let's turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 7. The Corinthians actually had some of these philosophical currents running through uh, the church, where due to the influence of kind of Greek philosophy there in Corinth, which was a strong center of that, spirituality was being associated with kind of non-physical bodies. And that was creating all kinds of problems in both directions on sexuality. But Paul has to land this particularly in chapter 6, where he's addressing immorality. But then in chapter 7, he's addressing husbands and wives who are actually denying one another sexually. And so he commands them this way. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the husband to her, uh, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control." And so it's important also to recognize that sex is commanded by God because it is a good gift from him that husbands, husbands and wives are to be faithful to one another by practicing and engaging, okay? So this is conditioned by God and is designed by God and given to you and actually commanded by God as a good thing. Third, sex is governed by God. Now, this is the part of the Bible's teaching that people are perhaps most familiar with. It's the negative side, okay? 
Of course, anytime we have a negative, it means that we also have to explore the positive side of that command. But there is a strong negative to sexual teaching in the Bible because God is very interested in confining the context of sexual expression, all right? So just before instructing the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7 about the need to exercise uh, sexual love in the marriage relationship, he also has to remind them that the body was not created for sexual immorality, okay? And that was in chapter 6. And so Paul's having to do both things here. And he warns us that sexual immora- uh, sexually immoral sin is sin against our own bodies, okay? And it's also sin against the Lord because the body belongs to the Lord. So these boundaries that God gives us, these are not kind of about a Victorian prudishness. That is how this will frequently be represented in the culture to you, that Christian sexual mores are simply about being prudish. But rather, I think the proper way to understand the Bible's teaching about this is not a prudishness, but rather God establishes boundaries for our sexuality and for sexual expression because it is such a powerful and good gift. Think of it like nuclear energy. You don't want to carry that around in a plastic bag, do you? It's going to melt through. It's going to radiate you, okay? Nuclear energy has to be contained inside of certain compartments. And there, it's incredibly powerful, and it can do something incredibly good, all right? But if it gets outside of that context, it becomes incredibly destructive. And this is somewhat the way that the gift of sex works for us. And so... Uh, God contains the goodness and the power, uh, and he confines the proper meaning of sex to the marriage relationship. Sex is such a powerful gift that it becomes destructive force when not used properly. Sexual boundaries exist in the Bible to promote flourishing and freedom, and that is inside of the marriage relationship, okay? Inside of this covenant partnership that God assigns to husband and wife. And so he governs it. And friends, he governs it for your good. He's out for your flourishing and for your freedom with this. Fourth, sex is intended for passion and pleasure. This is the side of uh, biblical teaching that people oftentimes get particularly uh, embarrassed about. But if you really do kind of take a dive into scripture on this, if you look at Proverbs 5, if you explore the Song of Solomon, entire book associated with, or even Psalm 45, you're going to find that sexual love is a source of delight and passion and also pleasure. And so it's all part of it. And a Christian need not to be ashamed by that, need not to be overly provocative about it. Modesty is still uh, a biblical virtue, but it also is uh, intended for husband and wife as a source of passion and pleasure. Those are our four things. If I were just summarizing kind of the biblical teaching on human sexuality that we could say. That's a gift from God, it's commanded by God, that it's governed by God, and it is intended for passion and pleasure. Of course, children play into that. I mentioned that, but uh, didn't make it its own uh, separate point. All right, so practically, where do things go wrong? Now, one of my old uh, mentors was an RUF minister for many years. And, um, and he had transitioned from being a kind of salty old RUF minister into a church planter. And I asked him one time, 
Hal, what's the biggest difference between college ministry and church planting? And he said, that's easy. And as I said, Hal was salty. He said, the biggest difference is that in college ministry, I was having to tell people all the time, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex. And in church ministry, all the time, I have to tell people, have sex, have sex, have sex, <laughs> okay? And as a young man, that absolutely made no sense. Some years later, it makes a great deal of sense. And so it's important for us to recognize the things that go wrong. And the first thing I would just say is that it is broken communion between husband and wife. Okay, the first thing that goes wrong in people's sexual relationship between husband and wife is just a broken or fractured communion. Now, biblically speaking, sex is a ceremony that signifies and seals the marriage covenant. If you think about any covenant that God makes in the Bible, what is he attached to that covenant? A sign, okay? That sign seals and ratifies everything that has been sworn, all the promises that God makes to his people, and then also our obligations to him. And so what we find in, uh, in the marriage covenant is something very similar. And this is what sex is. And this is why God also seeks to protect it, because it is something sacred, okay? It's why in Hebrews 13, it says, keep the marriage bed undefiled, hold marriage in honor, because it is something sacred to God. And sex is that covenantal ceremony that ratifies and celebrates the promises that have been sworn between husband and wife to give themselves to one another in undying faithfulness, okay? And so in this union, in this physical union, that is what is celebrated and what is ratified. And so ceremonies like circumcision or Passover, they were to be repeated and celebrated by the entire community, and they were to do so as a renewal of their covenant, okay? That was just part of kind of Israelite religion, and that bleeds over into marriage. So likewise for marriage, sex is a ceremony that ratifies and celebrates a husband, a husband and wife's one flesh commitment to one another. It's an act of covenant renewal. Okay? And so sexual activity between husband and wife, um, this does not define the health of a relationship necessarily. Okay? But it typically is a good predictive of how healthy the marriage relationship it is. It typically reflects how healthy it is. Okay, so t sex is typically a barometer of relational health. It's an expression of health, but not health itself. Because what it means is if that union is going well, then typically this follows, okay? That if husband and wife are communicating, if they're living together well, if they're being faithful to their vows, if they're seeking to honor and cherish one another and love one another and respect one another, doing all the things that we've talked about, if they're communicating well, then typically the sexual relationship follows. And so if you find that your marriage is lacking sex, my overarching experience as a pastor has been that it's pointing to a more fundamental problem. Spouses sometimes want to fixate on this and say, well, there's extreme problems here. And it's like, well, let's just back up for a second. We can get there, but let's look at more fundamental issues. 
that typically the issues rely in our relationship, in our communication, and whether we are actually uh, living together successfully inside of our marriage vows. Okay? So broken communion is typically the source. And if you find yourself in this place, let me give a hypothetical. Let's say that there is a spouse who just is building up resentment because they feel like their sexual life is not where it should be. Okay? And they're building up resentments. Oftentimes that is what happens. It leads to explosive types of arguments that don't heal anything. All right? But what needs to happen is when you find yourself in that place is you just need to take up the invitation to go to your spouse and say, hey, I just think something is not working between us and I would love to address that. Okay, start there rather than at the mechanics of the bedroom. All right, I promise it'll go infinitely better for you um, and uh, over time. Uh, but start there with the relational fundamentals, okay? So broken communion. Second, counterfeits. Now, sex and marriage is challenged by the cheap counterfeits on offer. We live in an over-sexualized culture. We've discussed that this fall. We've explored that a good bit. Uh, as a culture, we are celebrating that human identity is defined by our sexuality. That is at great odds with how Christians define sexuality. We don't define sexuality as the core of what it means to be human. Rather, it's a gift from God, and it's part of who God has made us to be. It's an aspect, but it by no means is the sum, okay? And so we're living in this sex-crazed culture that has a very different definition. And so there are going to be lots of cheap counterfeits and superficial takes that are also going to impact us and affect us. Now, there is no more profound way to break trust than to be unfaithful to your spouse sexually. It simply is quite destructive and violent to marriage relationships. Doesn't mean that there's not healing. Many people have walked through that distrust and found healing and grace, and God is gracious to extend that, okay? His promise is always there for us. But we also have to recognize it for what it is. It's a breaking of a vow. It's a breaking of that one flesh union, uh, and it's taking something sacred and making it profane. So, uh, this is all what the Bible calls sexual immorality, going outside the bounds of the covenant partnership and seeking sexual satisfaction there. There are two main expressions of this that impact our circles. There are many different possible expressions, okay, but two main expressions that impact our circles. There are emotional and sexual affairs, and then there's also pornography, all right? The word sexual immorality in the Bible, particularly when you look at it as to how Jesus uses that term, is a broad one. It's not simply talking about the physical act of sex, okay? It does go broader, okay? And so I'm going to include pornography in that, and I'll have certain strong things to say in just a moment. But uh, the Bible's uh, advice to us, Hebrews 13, important verse, let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Hebrews 13. Proverbs 5, interesting chapter. It's a chapter written from uh, the king to his son, instructing him about all the dangers of life. And chapter 5 is beautiful. And, and uh, guys, if you're looking to instruct your, if you have sons who are uh, in that age and bracket and they need instruction, this is a great place to go. It's just an apt warning. But it's also wonderful advice just for anyone, okay? And even 
uh, if you're not a young man, you can appreciate what is being said because they are just these eternal, timeless truths. But Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, all right? Uh, just a wonderful depiction of what it is that God commands us to do. He's allowing us to freely drink water. Yes, drink it down, gulp, you know, satisfy yourself. But do so from your own cistern. And then he gives the wise admonition that why would you not drink from that flowing stream? And why would you have your streams of life flow out into the streets? Okay? It's a beautiful picture of what happens that our life dissipates and falls apart when we go outside of that covenant partnership. So let's talk about these two counterfeits, what goes on. The destruction of sexual affairs is pretty well known, okay? I don't think I need to enumerate that. That said, people still find themselves getting lured and seduced into this type of, uh, of breaking of covenant vows. And this normally doesn't come about because of um, any primary sexual need, Okay? This normally comes out of kind of some type of emotional need that's not being met inside of the marriage, all right? And so guys, that's one of the most important things just to understand about yourself because none of us are beyond being tempted or finding ourselves in a place where we feel emotionally isolated from our spouse. And it's at those times and in those places, 100% of the time uh, that I have worked with couples where there has been a sexual affair. Okay? It always happens because of some type of emotional need that is not being met, some type of dissatisfaction, some type of growing resentment, and then the person ends up beginning to look elsewhere to find those needs met. And typically that's when sex is introduced into that relational picture. And so just being aware of how that works, being aware of yourself, being able to take your spiritual temperature, you know, and that when you find yourself kind of uh, feeling on the outside emotionally with your spouse, that's a great time not to go look somewhere else, but a great time to go have an intentional conversation, okay? And say, hey, what's going on between us, all right? And if husbands and wives uh, exercise that and we're more willing to step into those issues rather to step into another relationship, we'd find ourselves in a different place, okay? But the second form of immorality that I discussed is probably not as well appreciated it's one that particularly is present in our society and is present in our society particularly because of the invention of the internet. Now as a kid, if you wanted to buy pornography, this is 1980s, you had to go to the, uh, to the gas station, okay? <laughs> and you had to pony up the money and the shame, okay? Deal with that of telling the clerk, I want that magazine back there. No, not that one, not Sports Illustrated, I want that one, you know? There was a shame tax associated with it, all right? You had to go through some social mechanisms, all right, to, in order to buy pornography. Um, that's not the case today, okay? It's readily available, not telling you anything you don't know. It's nothing more than a click away. There will even be advertisements. You can be bombarded with it, okay? It's readily present uh, and accessible to people. And so it is uh, tremendously impactful in modern society. Just one statistic for you. Um, I think we all know, living in a city with professional sports teams, how big professional sporting is. 
how much money people pour into professional sporting. It's an enormous industry. But do you know if you took all professional sporting together, the NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL, do you know that all of that is a smaller industry than the pornography industry? Okay. It's a massive financial industry. And so we just need to be aware of that. It often under, <laughs> operates kind of under, under the covers. It's hidden. Um, but yet they have uh, a lot of special interests and have worked very hard uh, to keep uh, those avenues open for people. So we have to appreciate uh, the problem, the depth of it, and, uh, and then we have to know what it does to marriage. So pornography impacts everyone involved, okay? From user, and let me say this, whether that be husband or wife, all right? That's not a limited category, all right? Whether that be husband or wife, it impacts the user, then it will impact the spouse, okay? It will also impact the children. It impacts everyone. No one is left untouched, and let me tell you why, okay? Going to be four things here. First, pornography participates in a corrupt and abusive economic system that exploits people. I don't know how to say it uh, more plainly to you. When I talk with my sons about it, this is how I talk about it, is I do not want you participating in the exploitation of young women, okay? This is a sick economy and that people are used and sometimes trapped and enslaved, or even when someone freely participates, they don't even know what they've gotten tied up in, and it's sick, okay? And as Christians, if you want to get on a, a kind of on a moral cause, it is to get on the moral cause of the enslavement of women in the sex industry, okay? It's despicable, all right? And when we participate in pornography, in the privacy of our homes, clicking on computers, we are participating in that exploitative system directly, okay? And so we want to be very aware of that and understand it. Um, and so we're engaged in something much larger than kind of our personal satisfaction at that point. And recognize that in becoming a slave to our own appetites, we enslave other people to very destructive habits and patterns in life, okay? And so as a Christian, it's very difficult for us to stop all that in our consumer economy, but one way that you can protest is just by being disciplined and not participating, okay? And just saying no. And so get what filter you need, get what accountability you need, throw your computer in the ocean, I don't care. <laughs> Y'all ever seen the Bob Newhart skit? He had this skit where he was doing counseling and uh, the person would announce their problem and he would say, stop it. And then they would say their problem again like they weren't getting it. He would say, stop it. And this is what uh, one of my college ministers used to do to us when we would explain our sexual problems with him. He would say, stop it. You know, it does get more involved than that, okay? Oftentimes there needs to be intensive care, okay? Especially on the backside of pornography addiction. Stop it doesn't work, okay? You do have to go further. There is lots of help available. But the first step always is cut off the sources, Okay, and so stop it. Cut off the sources. Go seek the help that you need, all right? Even though that can be a scary and frightening conversation, and I know that people don't want to have it. I typically know when I'm at a lunch where this is going to come up because we fumble around the subject for 45 minutes, and then the last five minutes together, we get to the meat of it, all right? I could have told you at the beginning of the lunch where the conversation was going, 
But guys, just know that you need to get to that conversation. It's an important one. It's important for you. It's important for your family. It's important for your kids, okay? And so uh, do everything you need. Put down those concrete measures to begin to cut that off, to strangle that, and then you can move into the emotional areas that need to be addressed. But this first point is corrupt and abusive economic system. Second, it is addictive and has the same impact as any other addiction on the human brain and also on our relationships around us, okay? Just psychological studies are so advanced now, they can hook up electrodes to your brain and map it and read what happens when you look at pornography. And you know what? It's the exact same stimulus that drugs will give you. That's how good sex is, okay? All right, it gives you that kind of stimulus. And so when people are engaged in pornography, they begin to get um, the, uh, I just forgot the word. There it is, endorphins or whatever it is. It's the dopamine hit. You get the dopamine hit, okay, and then you train your body over time. And guess what? You become an addict. And this is why people find themselves in repetitive ruts, all right? And that doesn't just involve you at that point. But this is what every addict thinks and what every person I've ever known who's addicted to pornography thinks is that this is just my personal problem. That's a lie. It's not your personal problem, okay? It's touching you and everyone around you, okay? Third, it objectifies the opposite sex and makes them a means of pleasure, not a person. This is one of the things that pornography especially does to the individual who's participating. It teaches us that sex is an object that we use to get what we want, that it's not part of this broader ceremony where husband and wife celebrate their vows in this one flesh union. And so it gives us a completely different definition and understanding of what it means to engage with sex. And it's destructive. And for parents who want to know how to talk with their kids, especially as they get older, this is a helpful point, okay? This is one that I use with my boys a lot, that, hey, I want you to understand the proper orientation of sex, and I want you to understand what pornography does to that and how that will um, impact your view of women that will be extremely unproductive for you in the long run, all right? But this is just what happens when we expose ourselves to this medium. Fourth. It looks outside the proper context of marriage to address sexual desires. This is what it does. It often feels like it's not as wrong as having an affair. And many people, even though they'll be slow to admit it, this is what they would say. Well, at least I'm not doing that, okay? But let me be clear that when Jesus defines sexual immorality, he doesn't just limit that to actually the physical act of sex, okay? That definition goes broader in the Bible, and it's important for us to appreciate that, that sexual immorality is going outside of the covenant marriage. It's breaking that covenant with sexual activity, okay? And that covers a certain span of activities, and, uh, and pornography falls within that, all right? And so we need to be aware of it. We need to take it seriously. We need to know it's not a joke, and we need to know also that there's help when we need it, okay? And so even though I am speaking strongly about this today, it's not to shame anyone. These are common uh, cultural struggles that we have to traffic in a lot in pastoral ministry. But it is hopefully also just if you find yourself stuck, it is to jolt you. You know, I want to put shock panels on you today. And 
and zap you a bit and just say, hey, let me address this for the sake of the health of my marriage, okay? Because this does unfortunately impact people's uh, husband and wife, one flesh union, and often impacts, typically impacts uh, their sexual life together. All right, so that's the second one. Third one, stress and lack of intentionality. One of my mentors told me that uh, life is not a friend of your sex life. <laughs> that was a helpful line, because it's not. Okay, work, stress, suffering, trials, all kinds of things work in to impede a healthy sex life in a marriage, all right? And so what we have to do is we have to work intentionally to say, hey, how are we going to cultivate a healthy sex life inside of our home? That's a good, positive, constructive conversation for husband and wife to have. Now, unfortunately, we have very romantic visions of what that sex life will be like. We want it to be magic, okay? We want our spouse just to always initiate to us. We don't want to have to put something on the schedule. We don't want to have to, um, uh, you know, we want to be emotionally moved and, and ready when that's going to happen. Uh, we think it should be spontaneous, romantic, and passionate. Um, guys, a sex life should involve all those things. Um, and we can't put that burden on it, but we can't put that burden on it every time, okay? That's not the foundation of it, all right? The bottom line is that a healthy sex life between husband and wife requires intentionality and cultivation. It doesn't just happen, okay? It's not just gonna find its way into your marriage. Um, and this may mean that you need a schedule. Now, some of you, that may not be new. You may be old hat at that. Some of you may be like, oh my gosh, that sounds like the worst thing ever. Typically in premarital counseling, and I always say it there uh, because I know they're gonna think I'm crazy. I say, well, you may want to talk about constructing a schedule for what this is going to look like. And they're like, oh, no, you don't know us. I was like, oh, I do. Um, <laughs> I do. <laughs> um, and let's talk in a few months. And, uh, <laughs> and typically you find, yeah, you know, I mean, Tuesday. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, uh, and many people think that having something like a schedule is going to take out the fun and the passion and the pleasure. I'd actually argue the opposite, that it typically creates excitement, okay? And it can create some planning and some forethought. If you know Tuesday is the schedule, you may go buy flowers. Hint, you know, take it, <laughs> take some advice. Um, you may do something special. Maybe you won't be so rude that day. I mean, just think through the practical things, all right? Um, but guys, there are just very practical things towards the demands of life. And also just that lack of intentionality that we've pointed to, it's just this entropy that kind of takes over in a marriage and it, that entropy can build over time where things just slowly spiral, all right? And we can all find ourselves in seasons of that, um, especially if there's problems between us that we're not addressing. But this is where intentionality in conversation with one another, intentionality in planning, these are all really important things. And if there's one word I want you to walk away from with this whole series is, hey, I want to be intentional about loving my spouse. All right? That will benefit your sex life. Fourth, bad conversations. 
Conversations about sex are incredibly personal and frequently don't go well between husbands and wives. <laughs> okay, that's the understatement of the year, all right? Um, most conflicts about sex happen in the bedroom, okay? They typically happen when someone has made an advance and has been rebuffed, okay? And that never goes well, all right? When you decide to have that conversation that's been building up for a couple of months, and then you decide to have it in that moment, it's not a good one. I've never seen it go well for anybody, all right? Um, it's not the time. And talking about intentionality, you need to be intentional about that discussion. And guys, these are some of the hardest discussions that husbands and wives have with one another because it is such a personal and an intimate subject. But if you can talk about sex successfully, guess what? Everything else is child's play, all right? If you can communicate with one another about sex, you'll find that talking about how to pay for college or what preschool to send your kid to or how to write your will, whatever it is, you're going to find those conversations. You're going to have a lot more facility for having those conversations, okay? Because when you can work through the um, let me, um, uh, conversations about sex are just like standing in water with electricity, okay? Um, it's just, you're just waiting for the shock to happen, all right? But when you can negotiate that and no one gets electrocuted, you can talk about about anything, all right? But uh, bad conversations between uh, spouses do kind of mark this ground. And, um, and once you've had a few bad interactions, it's hard to have a good one, okay? And so the best way to overcome that is just say, hey, I haven't prosecuted this conversation well in the past. I'd like to negotiate it better, okay? And there's a few things I'd like to talk about, all right? That's a good way to start if you find yourself in a bad place. All right, that's bad conversations. And then finally, tough history. There are cases where sexual problems between husbands and wives are related to things that happened prior and outside of the marriage before the marriage was formed. Okay? And I communicate this with all pastoral sympathy um, because this is hard. Okay, This is where our past uh, can catch up with us. And sometimes that past is not something that we actively participated in or chose, okay? So there are things like sexual abuse, sometimes that's stifled and hidden, and then there is also sexual promiscuity, and those things can cause pretty deep problems uh, for couples. It can catch up with them. Sometimes it catches up with them much later, okay? Years later. And it doesn't always make sense to the person who's struggling with it. And guys, if you have a spouse who finds himself in that place, this is that wonderful moment to be a sympathetic and understanding high priest, even though it costs you something, okay? And it is to enter into that conversation and to seek the help that you need. There are deep resources out there. Our church is connected with them. And if you find yourself in one of those locations, just know that we have loved to direct you to those places, okay? I'm not going to be your Dr. Ruth, and you never have to worry about that, all right? No interest. This is as deep as it goes right here, all right? Um, and, uh, but there are places where you can find all the help that you need, okay? And it's wonderful. Uh, and we've seen people walk through that and find the resources of God's grace for them. So just know that that tough history, if that is a part of your, uh, your background, uh, and if you do find it playing into your current sex life with your, with your spouse, then know that that's an important subject uh, to take up and to 
uh, to find uh, to help for. So it is out there. But guys, those are the practical things of what goes wrong. It's also the things that God says about it, all right? And that, yes, in the Song of Solomon, there is this celebration that I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I am my beloved's and he is mine. That's the celebration of the covenant partnership between husband and wife. And sex is the seal of that, it's the sign. And so something for us to celebrate, something for us to guard because it's sacred, something for us to be intentional about in developing and cultivating so that we can delight in one another and build up the health of our marriage. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time, and we've said a lot, and we've said strong things because you communicate to us strongly about these things. And where we need grace and where we need to be built up by you, we ask that you do so. Gently minister to us, build up our marriages, that they be ones of sexual faithfulness and joy and celebration. And so, God, give us grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.